Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Very glad that you can join us. And uh, I'm very glad to have Lachlan in the same room as me uh, today, which doesn't uh, normally get to happen, but he's down here in Tassie. And we're looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, g'day. Ken here. Um, I'm in a little room on my own. And I'm Luke, and I'm also all alone in a little room. And I'm Lachlan, and when Cam said room, he means his brand new shed, so it's very exciting to be here. Yeah, we, we're not recording from the house because there are five very excited children to be sleeping in the same room as their cousins, and that the excitement's gone off the charts a little bit, and that, that's not conducive to, to low levels of background noise, so we've relocated to the shed. And I know you're an eternal optimist, Cameron, because you suggested that they were sleeping, the five <laughs> cousins, in the one room. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, we're continuing on through Hebrews, and we looked at Hebrews 1. And after our discussion last week on Hebrews 1, I took the Sabbath school lesson at Launceston Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I was not satisfied with the way it played out because I couldn't quite... The conversation didn't go where I thought it would go. And then I realised that I was, it wasn't clear in my own mind where I wanted it to go. And it came clear to me at the end of the lesson, uh, which shows you only have to teach a lesson twice or, or discuss it twice before you have some idea of what, what you're thinking of. What I was thinking of is that, um, and we did touch on this a bit, but Hebrews doesn't seem to be an apologetic work. As in apologetics, if I'm, is that the correct term? Where you're trying to argue a detailed case to someone on the outside. So someone who, for instance, is not a Christian. So uh, C.S. Lewis wrote Mere Christianity. And its, it's sort of target audience is, is someone who's interested but by no means convinced in Christianity. And um, I was a bit dissatisfied l- last week in Hebrews 1 at the way, the sort of reckless manner in which Old Testament verses are, are, are quoted Merely, it seems, for the effect that they give the piece. It doesn't seem to be very true to those verses in the original context. And I thought that if you were trying to convince a, a first-century Jew that Christ was the Messiah, that approach might be less than convincing. But after the discussion last week, I realised that's not what Hebrews is trying to do, is it? It's written to people who who have accepted Christ and uh, and are starting to slip away or are starting to lose faith in the, in the face of persecution. And this comes out more in this chapter. And, and the author is exhorting them to stay true to what they were previously convinced of. And I, I'd like to suggest as a contrast, uh, as a work which is apologetic, openly apologetic, would be uh, the Gospel of John, which is written so that you may believe. And I, f- I, find, I find the Gospel of John, I think, would probably be a better starting point for someone who... who wasn't really convinced yet about Christ. The interesting thing about that is I know, um, I know a number of pastors who deliberately choose the Gospel of John as a, as a thing to read through, to, to start Bible studies with, um, I was going to say new believers, but let's go even a step further, curious and interested people. So yeah, I think you may be onto something there, Cam. So, so let's read through Hebrews 2, and it does really draw out this context about the importance of staying true to something you've already um, believed. And, and given, that, given that the book of Hebrews seems to be aimed at people who have already sort of agreed that Christ is important, but are not quite sure if they're going to last the distance or stick around or whether it's as important as they once thought when they were first converted, I, I, I'm much more comfortable with the sort of homiletic is the technical word, isn't it? The, the sort of artistic 
quotation of, of verses from the Old Testament. So um, uh, I, my, my problems have been put to rest now and I'm all eager to jump into the second chapter. I might kick us off and I'll just read a few verses. I'll read the first four verses and then we'll stop and discuss. There's only 18 verses, so we'll get all the way through the chapter uh, today. Again, demonstrating your eternal optimism, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll see. You, you don't know how fast I'm going to read it, Ken. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so do not drift away from the message. Okay. That sounds very careful. <laughs> yeah. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We live in a distracted world, not an attentive world. That's the first thing that strikes me. We must pay careful attention. How do we do that? I think there are spiritual disciplines of, well, paying attention. Uh, silence, mm. uh, solitude, um, perhaps even journaling, the spiritual discipline of journaling, uh, to pay attention if that's what you do. Um, yeah, I mean, my overwhelming sense from just those couple of verses is this is, again, a carefully constructed argument. It doesn't sound like something coming straight off the top of someone's head. It sounds like something that someone is building fairly meticulously piece by piece. Um, there's the use of a rhetorical question. Um, you know, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? There's, well, it starts with a therefore, so it's clearly connected. This chapter break seems to be a little bit arbitrary in the flow of the argument, and I suspect we'll see that further on as we continue through Hebrews. Um, it's the sort of thing that, that I feel the need to go and just reread once or twice to try and make sure that I'm following along carefully. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of the closer attention that we're being exhorted to pay. Mm. Um, I reflect on this. I went, uh, of course, I would never do this. Perhaps I should tell the story on myself because it's equally able to be told on me as any other pilot. Uh, here's the aviation reference. Um, I think plus or minus uh, 10 degrees um, is, and plus or minus 100 feet in altitude is the... Uh, um, requirement for a private pilot uh, and plus or minus five degrees and plus or minus 50 feet of altitude holding is the uh, uh, requirement as I recall it for a commercial pilot's license. It is very head easy um, if you're not paying careful attention with a good workflow uh, to watching all of your instruments uh, to have your heading drift away uh, by more than the five or the ten degrees and when that happens you end up where you headed but not where you intended <laughs> so ken i think it i think it's perfect um i'm going to keep talking about pilot stuff now that you've opened the door <laughs> but it's actually perfect it's a it's a perfect example of what you're talking about with the concentration because as i was taught it anyway and i've only done a very little bit of of instrument flying the instrument flying is where you really got to pay attention to your altitude and heading because you're not flying based on what you can see around you you're flying based only on what your instruments tell you um and 
people who've seen, I think everybody's seen a photo of an aircraft cockpit, right? And even a small plane, it's got a lot of instruments, it's got a lot of switches, it's got a lot of levers, it's got a lot of controls in it. And you might be forgiven for assuming, therefore, that a pilot does lots of things at once. That is completely wrong. A pilot only ever does one thing at a time, and they concentrate on that one thing as they do it. Now, you might switch between one things very quickly, but you're only ever doing one thing at a time. And you do them in sequence, and you learn and memorize the sequence, and that's how you remember all of the safe and correct ways to do things, you know? Um, and so with instrument flying, that heading and that altitude, the way I was taught to do it was you look, you're, you've got a row of six instruments, and you're looking at the one in the center. You look down to the one below, you look back up. You look to the one to the left, you look back to the middle. You look to the one to the right, you look back to the middle. You look down to the one below, you look back up. That's how you, and you cycle that constantly. So you have, you're really concentrating the whole time and you're, you're checking, but you're only doing one thing at a time, but you're checking things all the time, multiple times, every few seconds, you know, tens of times, hundreds of times an hour. And you're concentrating and you're focused the whole time. And you're always only doing one thing at a time. It's a really good point, Luke. So when you say careful attention, that's, that's what I think of. Mm is that the, training the other thing that pilots are taught is and this would be a fascinating discussion which we won't take time to to get into but um, pilots are taught in which order to drop things from that sequence if they're in a stressful situation so if <clears throat> if you're stressed and you're unable to scan across everything all at once then uh, you will uh, ignore radio traffic if you were in a really bad fix and your fix, engine was faulty or something, you were having trouble concentrating, you could take off your headset um, because we have limited capacity. And if you were further stressed still, you would stop map reading. If there was something you know, seriously wrong with the aircraft that required your immediate, your full attention. And uh, so the mentor is to aviate first and then navigate and then communicate. And uh, it would be interesting to say because we always talk about spiritual disciplines and what, what's, you know, good. As a parent of kids who are growing up a little bit now, I do find a little bit more time on my hands. But when they were young, sometimes you just, I just, I'd never had time or energy for almost anything. And it would be really interesting to sit down and write a list of sort of spiritual disciplines and say, well, these, these are what we, uh, good practices to do in order to pay close attention to the message that's been given us. Uh, but if you're in a fix, if something's really awful going on in your life and you just don't have the emotional energy, these are the ones you would drop first. And so for a, for a pilot, I mean, pretty much the last two you get down to is your airspeed and, and your attitude to the horizon. Um, if, you, if you couldn't think of anything else and you couldn't process the engine or, you know, if you were suddenly started feeling really ill, for instance, you would, you would focus down onto those two things. And it would be fa fascinating to not only just talk about spiritual disciplines, it'd be interesting to, to write a list of their sort of relative um, importance in times of crisis and when there's limited resources. So I think that there's an interesting observation there because for lots of human history and in lots of religious traditions, um, church attendance would be one of the last things to drop if people were throughout history to have written that list. And one of the changes that I observe in Christian communities over the last perhaps generation is that that physical attendance at a church event is may may in fact be one of the earlier items to drop off that that list. 
Um, and of course, COVID, with lockdowns, with church through the internet, with churching at home, with churches from cars in car park, all sorts of different things have happened that, that I think may have accelerated this transition, if anything. Um, people, people finding ways to maintain spiritual disciplines and spiritual communities without that being based solely around the physical attendance at a building once a week. Um, so yeah, I reckon that there would be generational and and just time-based changes in those lists if you were to make them, Cam. Well, I I I I'd suspect that if you if you drill down to core concepts in the same way that Aviate Navigate Communicate does for all of the many hundreds of different tasks that are involved in flying, um, I, I think you could actually probably come up with something universal and and fairly enduring, Lock, um, because. And I'm not suggesting this is the best uh, comparison, but this is what immediately occurred to me when Cam very, very kindly said his three things. Um, the three was significant. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. <laughs> yeah, I think you might be onto something. So faith, hope, and love. <laughs> yeah. Right? And we know that love is the greatest. So love is definitely the last one that you drop. So always love. And then it's a bit of a fight out between faith and hope as to who gets second and third place. Yeah. But That's I think as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a trio of core Christian concepts to maintain under all circumstances, that's a pretty good guide. It's interesting that love is preeminent because, uh, you know, uh, mm. that means if, you, if you're under time pressures fact. and you had to choose between praying or stopping to help someone, uh, I mean, you could pray while you help them. But that's food for conversation. We're not we're not going to go there because our, our commitment to shorter episodes is becoming less and less and less likely. So, Ken, can you read us the next section from Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5? It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. These are the verses that I actually remember best from Hebrews. I think maybe Hebrews in its entirety, the six, six, seven, and eight, in particular, which come from Psalms, Psalms eight. Yes, I think four to six. Yeah, but I think that because that's what my study Bible tells me. I don't want to represent myself as having some, you know, great biblical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have no fear. Our listeners already think that we are amazing because of the art of editing can remove all manner of minutes spent finding references. <laughs> I'm really fascinated by this application. Whole, whole hours, I would submit yeah. at this point. The, this application of that passage from Psalms, though. So man being a little lower than the angels, that's great. Okay, we feel pretty comfortable with that. But then in verse 9, there's because Jesus is being presented as representative of man there's jesus who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels um that strikes me a little bit unusual actually to be honest even even in his incarnation to describe jesus as being a little lower than the angels 
feels wrong. That, Locke, that may not be a statement about sort of his sort of core mode of being, but it may be the role that he played. You'd have to say that suffering the indignity of the cross was, was a job that was certainly lower than the angels. Um, none of them, you know, are ever recorded as having been mocked or even disbelieved. Well, except, except Cam, except this, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. Uh, so it is that very experience that gives him a glory and honour um, that, in fact, elevates him. Uh, I'm I'm finding that that's a little bit reminiscent of parts of Revelation, by the way. You know, the the idea of being exalted because, you know, the lamb that was slain exalted to a position of honour. So that, that seems a consistent idea with some other parts of the New Testament. I mean, I know, I, I know that within our uh, religious tradition, uh, it's very strong and even human experience does bear out that, you know, uh, he who loses his life will save it. And there, there are all of those, uh, the, laws, the law of indirect returns that, that, that we see. But it does seem very counterintuitive at first glance, at least to a person enculturated the way I am, uh, that, that there is glory in suffering. Yeah, we don't celebrate it very much, Ken. We should have been born Victorians, as in Victorian era, not in the state of Victoria. Um, no. Yeah. I think uh, bo- both meanings yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, at the moment, the Victorians in the last couple of years have had to put up with a fair amount of, of suffering. Um, but that was not the sort of suffering. COVID shutdowns wasn't what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the sort of stereotypical Victorian era explorer. In the fifth month, we were forced to eat the dogs and we're stuck in the wasteland and, you know, there's that sort of narrative which is beautifully parodied in uh, The Ascent of Rumdoodle where, uh, you know, the people would be very, or at least the narrator would be very, of that book would be very upset if it were not very difficult. And care is taken to sort of, you know, not in a boastful way, but, you know, to point out all the difficulties because that makes the achievement all so much better. Yeah. So I suppose in that sense... Uh, well, that's part of the human experience that does demonstrate it. I mean, those uh, explorers, the Shackletons, um, uh, there is a glory, um, perhaps not in the moment, um, uh, but certainly in the history books. Yeah. Again, I'm mindful of the clock, so we might move on. Locke, do you want to read the next section from Hebrews? God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God have given me. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Can I just 
Can I just point out that this is an example, a very obvious example of what made me makes me a little uncomfortable with this mode because these are passages. In the passage, say, quote, this is what this Christ is doing that said. Thing right? you don't like, Cam. The author of Hebrews is saying, and so Christ said X Y Z, but they're references to the Old Testament, <laughs> Psalms and Isaiah, according to BibleGateway.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think I'll I'm going to just say again that uh, I think that they they express what the author's trying to say, and uh, uh, yeah. If, if I went camping and it was cold and I was trying to convince you it was cold because you didn't believe me, I might, I might say things in a different way to if you were already convinced it was cold, but I was just trying to describe how cold it was mm. in, a, in a very evocative way. And I think maybe Hebrews falls into the second category here. I, I don't think that a first century Jew would agree that those words were in fact the words of Christ. But I, they express the sentiment here, and I, I'm actually getting a bit of a sense of the argument because in chapter 1 it said uh, how much bigger Christ was than the angels, better Christ was the, than the angels, through whom all things were made. But then he's made a bit lower than the angels. And, and through his suffering, he obtains glory. And in this passage, we see it is his desire to take us with him. Mm. So that's the sort of broad th- you know, development of the theme that we, we have a Messiah figure equal with God, the perfect image of God, but becomes lower than the angels. And now it's his desire to bring many sons to glory and daughters, presumably. Uh, yeah, well, I was, reading, I was reading this from the New Living Translation, and I think it uses gender-neutral language here. Brothers and sisters, children, uh, chose to bring many children to glory. Um, I, I will say in verse 14... The very succinct logical argument here is for only as a human being could he die, that is Jesus, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. That, that is actually a fairly complicated idea. And I will point out, we've talked about um, different pictures and different models of atonement in the past in previous episodes. We don't need to go down that deep rabbit hole again other than just to comment it's not immediately obvious to me why god does need jesus to die to break the power of the devil yeah um i mean uh if you have a, a sick animal uh you take it to the vet uh the vet doesn't need to get ill uh in order to heal the animal um now i don't know maybe i'm that's not a fair logical comparison, uh, but I don't see any reason why you need to die in order to defeat death. Yeah, I think uh, one important difference would be, Ken, is that the, uh, the animal is treated against its consent and apart from its will, whereas this salvation... Okay, make it, make it a human being going to a doctor. Uh, yes. Yes, that it, we don't have a system whereby the doctor is required no, to get no. sick. No, so no, 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 but uh, supposing, um, what am I trying to say? You've got a young child and you're trying to convince them to, you're on a bushwalk and there's a bit of a hill and they're a bit frightened of this particular, to your eyes, very small cliff face. So you say, no, it's fine, I'll do it. And that, so then you go up it and you come down it and then you do it again and then you come down again. You say, look, I can help you up that part. And then you go up and down and down again and then they say, oh, well, well I think I could. Um, and then they go up. Uh, that's that's actually a really good example because 
Um, verse 15 says, and he does that, uh, well, in doing that, he frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Ah. So here we come again, here we come against that sort of proposition. Uh, you see, uh, it's not that, so in, in a sense, the argument is, and, and now, thanks, Cam, that really helps me a lot, because the argument is not that I have to die in order to uh, defeat death, uh, but the argument is if I die and I'm resurrected, then that frees you from the dear of fear of death because you also can be confident of your resurrection because you are a being of flesh and blood, as was I, yeah. uh, and I came, uh, I, I lived again after the death of my flesh and blood, so will you. Yeah, I think, I think the better analogy um, is the young child at the restaurant who won't touch the food because it looks different. You say, well, look, I'll have, I'll have some. And you greedily scoop up three three things from their plate and say, "Oh, that was good. Can I have all of it?" And then they say, "Oh no, um, they're going to have." So there there is one sense in which, if only that worked with yeah. my daughter. Well, yeah, she I looks only at me found and goes, big success you with you that eat. strategy, Cam. It, it could it could be that God only enjoys it could be that God only enjoys mixed success. That that seems to be the case, uh, but True but that. maybe that's the sentiment of these verses and. Um, well, I think if we read the final verse, do that for us, Luke. Which I assume you've left to me for this purpose, Cam. Um, there is there is some interesting additional explanation on this theme. Um, which, which do we read up to? We've now read fifteen uh, or sixteen. Yeah, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hmm. You know, I can already see something quite interesting here. I think very frequently Hebrews has been used in Christian history to bolster in some ways this idea of Jesus needing to appease God. And, and what we're noticing here is something quite different. We're noticing that Jesus is doing what he's doing in order to more effectively reach and save humans. Empathize in order to be able to it empathize does. with well, humans. Well, it does suggest... To become a merciful that, high priest. That, to suffer when he was tempted so he is able to help those who are being uh, tempted. Yes. Empathy. That suggests, though, that he would have been less empathetic had he not gone through the experience of the incarnation which suggests that god learns by well, exper through experience uh, yes and further to that god changes post incarnation compared to pre-incarnation he is less empathetic prior to christ's period of time on earth because he has learned empathy during that period with the human condition with human suffering and with human temptation uh, i i was uh, i I understand that. Um, I, I struggle with the with the need for empathy. Yeah, how am I saying this? Um, uh, empathy is a means by which he is able to do what he does more effectively because he has 
experienced it in the same way. Uh, maybe maybe empathy is in the eye of the beholder. Um, there are there are you know incidences reported occasionally where some very rich person, um, you know, says how sorry they feel for the victims of this hurricane, and they're speaking from their luxury yacht, and they're you know. And, and the internet comes alive with, you know, joyful um, slander against these people uh, because the accusation is how on earth could you, could you possibly be empathetic with the victims of anything from, from your circumstances? So, so maybe, maybe it's not the case that God understood us less well, but it is just easier for us to believe now that he understands us. Yeah, and, and I was going to say do, exactly. We do, we do experience that, and, and we see that in the world. I mean, I don't know that that's what Hebrews is saying, though. The, that verse passes fairly clear to me. He had to be fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Yeah, no, but I still think. How do you read that sentence well, and maybe say God already... or Jesus didn't? No, but change. go back to verse sixteen. So he came to help the descendants of Abraham. And I'm I'm aware of to return to Cam's analogy with with kids. Maybe it's not kids facing a hill or food at a restaurant that's putting them off. Maybe it's kids facing a socially complicated situation at school with I don't know a bully or a friend in difficult situation. And you say as a parent, oh yeah, you know this something along the lines of basically. Yes, this happens. I've done. I've been in this similar situation before. It's all going to turn out all right. And you see in your kid's face, and maybe this happens when they're just a bit older than than two or three. Maybe, um, maybe as as they're pre adolescence, it's a little bit more prominent because very young kids just trust their parents quite quite clearly. I've definitely seen my ten year old son give me a look that says, "You say." you know what I'm feeling, but I do not believe that you know what I'm feeling. Um, and then you, then you, as a parent, trying to think, oh, okay, so what, what would I be able to do to demonstrate, um, to be able to show convincingly, yeah, I, I am speaking from experience here. You, you can trust me on this one. Um, and I, I just wonder whether there's a, an, an element of that in which it is possible. Ken, I'm coming to your side. I'm coming to your defense. Is it possible that God is capable of as much empathy in the Old Testament era as he is in the New Testament era, but that there is a powerful sense of communicating and validating that? And in order for verse 16 to be true, um, in order to come and help the descendants of Abraham, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like them or us, his brothers and sisters. So what, what you're and, saying and, is the thing he became, the change was not that he became more merciful, but that he became more like a high priest. Yeah, yeah. Or that he was more able, more effectively able to serve God in that way, which is, which is what it says. He became a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Uh and it's and it's said for that re for this reason he 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 had to be made like his brothers to become a more to serve God better in what way um, well to free them from their slavery to the fear of death um, so uh, perhaps and and we do understand uh, in our experience the need for uh, a, a trust that 
only develops with shared common experience. Um, I've not ever experienced uh, combat with anybody else, but you hear stories of it. Um, I have uh, experienced um, the collegiality of uh, professional advocates. And it seems to me that it is only other barristers who understand the difficulties of other barristers. And we can see analogies in other professions and that sort of thing, but there is, there is some real connection. It, it brings me to, um, uh, and I'm being very unfair to him in this, but James Packer uh, recently wrote a, 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 you know, a biography where he talked about I don't remember the title of it exactly, but it was, you know, the, the difficulty of being James Packer or something like that. <laughs> and, and I have to say, with, with, with respect to, to, to James, I, I, there was a part of me that said, I'm sorry, that title just doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, uh, and yet, of course, how could I possibly know the difficulties involved in being a billionaire? Um uh, it, it's it's a realm that's that's beyond me. And, and the other thing that uh, to take it to the other example, sometimes I experience a degree of skepticism bordering on cynicism about um, you know these nights to raise money for homeless people where rich CEOs sleep out in a stadium, you know, with a piece of cardboard and their sleeping bag, um, uh, as if somehow that gives the experience of homelessness. I, I mean, look, I'm not homeless and I haven't experienced homelessness, so I can't say whether that helps in any way. I, I just wonder. Um, uh, I don't want to um, disparage anything that uh, does any good uh, in that way for a significant problem in our community. But, um, uh, I, I, and, you know, we have Alcoholics Anonymous where you have sponsors for people who've been alcoholics and so uh, it, it it resonates with with our experience even if as a matter of strict logic uh, you can say it ought not be necessary for god to become a human being in order to achieve this reconciliation um, uh, our human experience tells us that uh, there is a deeper trust that develops with common experience. Well, Ken, and I think what this really says is uh, it might not be necessary, it was the phrase you used, it might not be necessary for God to do X, Y, Z to ensure salvation. Who is it that replaced the constraints on this situation? Who, who, which party in this situation uh, determined what, and what, what was and what wasn't necessary for salvation? And I think more of that came from us than from God. In as much as this is a relationship thing. So when we say, well, what was necessary? That's not an abstract. That's, that's between these two parties. And, 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 you know, I imagine this is a problem that marriage counsellors are often faced with too, uh, where there's one, you know, um, I don't know, there's someone who's passionately a collector of matchbox cars or something and it gets on his wife's nerves. Well, in that situation, it may be necessary to reach some compromise surrounding matchbox cars. Uh, like you know, but what's necessary in this situation is dictated by the parties involved. So if it is the case that that people found it hard to trust God, and that the incarnation event helped, then it was necessary. Oh, that's interesting. I I do not think, for me anyway, I cannot read these verses 
and say that this is entirely about our perceptions of God. Because I just don't read that in these sentences. And I'd point you to 18 as well as another example. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being Mm. tempted. Therefore, if he had not suffered when he was tempted, he would not be able to help those who are being tempted. How do you read that as any way other than a change in the nature of Christ because he suffered and was tempted? It can't just be our perception of Christ. We see that he suffered when he was tempted, so we trust him more. That, 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 that can be true, and I don't dispute that that's true. I think that's a very important part of the incarnation, is that it was public, that humanity saw it. But that is not what this verse says. This verse says Christ changed and is better able to help humans because he was made a human and he suffered and was tempted. That's what 16 to 18 says as I read it. I, I'm happy to, to have it explained to me why verse 18 doesn't say what I well, think. I, yeah. I don't think they're necessarily <laughs> but I think it inconsistent. Says that. Uh, and I don't think you're saying that they are. Um... No, I, I, I think they can both yeah. be true. But, but I think you can't say that Christ was unchanged by the incarnation. But therefore God mm. was unchanged by the incarnation. Well, of course, it's not the only... According to this verse, we could say that this verse is wrong, but that's what this verse says. It's not the only part of the Bible that has this sort of um, hint. I was going to say dilemma, but to me personally, it's not actually a dilemma. Um, If there is a sense in which an infinite and all-powerful God can still create a creation with an autonomy, with... uh, the sorts of things that God seems to be valuing in in the story of and history of the world. Um, If that can, in some ways, expand, cause growth to that God, that's that's not a troubling thing. That feels to me exactly like the sort of thing that God might have been actually interested in all along. Um, Well, I I think back, and it wasn't that long ago, to our our podcast on when we looked at the story of Noah and the Mm. covenants, we're talking about the covenants. And there's a very strong sense in the story of Noah that God goes, oh, I regret creating people. You're all evil. And at the end of the story, he goes, maybe you guys need some rules. Yeah. And it's like that's the first time he thought of it. I was thinking of that. I was thinking of the the well-known story where, um, stories, one where Abraham bargains with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, one where Noah... Where, sorry, Moses um, explains to God why it would actually be a bad idea to wipe out all the Israelites. He's just evacuated from Egypt. And both of those strike me as being um, less, less about the, the deep and detailed theology of God changing his mind in the light of a human giving him stern advice. And, and a little bit more, in, they, they seem to me a little bit more about humans telling stories from humans' perspectives. But nonetheless... They still paint a picture of a God who is attentive to, open to, to listening to, and then, and then learning from, in a sense, changing actions in light of. And yeah. we, well, we and have doctrines say, of, of prayer. You know, we, we have, com- in our own Christian community, we have cultures of, of praying earnestly to God in difficult and tight situations, hoping that that activity can can lead to some change of outcomes. Um, 
so yeah if god is so immovable and and you know i know that we speak of god being the same yesterday today and tomorrow but if he's literally the same unchangeably the same then then there's a certain inconsistency in some of our actions one of the things is that god wants to relate to us and we we at least i can't i would challenge anyone else um how would you relate to or have a relationship with of any sort something that was unchangeable it's it just wouldn't be possible so i think i think that if god wants a relationship with us he has to at least portray himself as changeable in some sense I I, I want to clarify as well, just particularly for you, Ken, but also for anyone listening who who might be wondering about me at this point. It it I was taught growing up, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, and uh, omnipresent. I think were the three, you know, and that verse that you said, you know, the same today, tomorrow, and forever after, which I now take to mean the character of God, the goodness of God, not necessarily every specific detail. Um, but yeah, I, I am also made uncomfortable by the idea of God making mistakes and, and having to improve it. It also makes me uncomfortable, but that's why I think it's really important that we don't shy away from, from parts of the Bible that seem to indicate because it's very important that we, we, therefore that we look at them. It's a really good point that you make, uh, Luke. And uh, one of the difficulties that we have is our limited conception of perfection um, so that uh, to say that something is perfect does not require that it be static um, uh, all that means is that it has to be as good as it can be at this moment I can see the physicist and the mathematician down there <laughs> grinning wildly uh, uh, the reason we're grinning is that there's a huge storm developing and having moved to the shed to escape background noise, we're now in an uh, uninsulated, unlined, colourbond uh. building. <laughs> and our microphone, and I think this might be a message from God to say that our time for the recording is almost over. No, <laughs> oh, but it's just got to the really interesting bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I interrupted you, Ken. Please finish the Well, the, the, the other aspect of the thought is it is all well and good to say that uh, God can know everything. And in that sense, he is omniscient. Uh, that doesn't require that he, in fact, chooses to know everything. Uh, and we can think of examples of that in our own lives. We have the ability to put our children under surveillance and see them and know what they are doing uh, at all times. Uh, there are times when we choose not to do that. Uh, there are times when we choose to give them a degree of freedom. There are times when we choose to do that just for pure fun. If you're playing the game of hide-and-seek, um, uh, you can choose not to know where your child has gone. Indeed, that's uh, an important part of the game. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, I don't see any reason why God can't say, I have the capacity to know these things. I choose not to. Hmm. Yes. And I think, look, the point, the point you made about, about humans, the creation of humans, I think I've, I've said this before on the podcast, but as, as I get older, one of the things I take great delight in is being surprised because that's something as a, as a, as a kid, I see it with my own daughter. She is surprised constantly. Mm. All sorts of things surprise her and it's a delight. Um, and as you get older, you, you know, there are fewer things in the world that 
really, really take you, you just go, oh, I, I did not see that coming. Um, and for me now, it's a great joy um, to, for example, watch a movie that, that, is, that goes in a completely different way from you know, normally 20 minutes into a movie, you can predict the entire plot. <laughs> and when you get one that, that is better than that, it's, it's a joy. Um, and in many other things. And I, I get a sense of that in the creation story with regards to how it describes the purpose of creating humans. And we talk about that in the context of free will. God gave people free will because otherwise they're just, they're not companionship, right? Um, but part of that free will surely must include the ability to surprise, hmm. to do something unexpected. Um, and that's that's fairly consistent in what we've read of the Old Testament and the New. People, yeah, and that that story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Ab- Abram arguing with God is a perfect example. I can imagine God in that situation going, "Oh, this is really cool. <laughs> Abram's done. Abram's done something I didn't see coming. I like this." You know, um, you see in those encounters a bit. I think of the the purpose of human existence. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, and this might be a point that's worth wrapping up on um, uh, because it's verse 10 that says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And uh, there's a sense in which uh, the joy of God in bringing sons to glory, uh, that that was... That's why everything is here, hmm. um, for that joy uh, in bringing sons to glory, um, in, hmm. in seeing the, the salvation uh, of humanity, in, in taking joy in the way that, uh, that it works out, taking joy in overcoming the slavery of fear to death. Thanks, Ken. We will leave it there. Um, we, of course, welcome any correction from our listeners if they feel that we've deviated to, if they are too uncomfortable with the concept, with well, let's face it, if they're uncomfortable with Hebrews 2 verse 18, they'll have to take it up with the author of Hebrews, I guess, in which case they ought not email us. Um, <laughs> but if they do have any thoughts, they can email us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And please join us again next week. And please share this podcast with anyone you, you feel might benefit from it. Uh, we've made the podcast it's free to distribute so if you know someone who might enjoy it please please send them that link and uh, we look forward to our discussion next week